Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And graduates, we really celebrate you, and I meant what I said, that you're not just moving on in school, but you're moving on in life. And as you are entering adulthood properly, uh, this is a really important step in your journey. And so we celebrate graduations because they represent a new beginning. So this sermon was in many ways written with you in mind. I thought of you and prayed for you quite often this week. But I also realized as I was writing the message that, by the way, now that you guys are far away, I'm going to take this off. In many ways, we all face new beginnings all the time. I think new beginnings are an essential and cyclical part of the human experience. I was just even thinking about my own life how many times I've embarked on a new beginning, a genuinely new chapter of my life into places I haven't been before. And so it is really important that we learn what we're supposed to be thinking, how we're supposed to be led as we enter new beginnings in our lives. New beginnings are really important biblical theme as well. I mean, if you think about the saving work of God, it's written in this really attractive, compelling language of new beginnings. I found so many Bible verses about this. I want, to find, I want to point out to you three really prominent ones that really blessed me this week. One of them is 1 Peter 1.3. Am I on the right slide there? It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's another one that's familiar probably to you. But this is in the New Living Translation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. and A new life has begun. I don't know about you, but that's very attractive to me because I know so many people who really wished that their lives could be made new and that they themselves would not just have a new life, but become a new person. That's the, the language in which God describes his own saving work. Let me give you one from the Old Testament that points forward to Jesus. Isaiah 43, 18 to 19 says this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland that ultimately points to the saving work of Jesus, and the wasteland is that place of being lost from God. But I know that 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 passage especially really resonates with many of us who are in a place in our lives where the normal has become something we can't bear, and we sense it deep in our hearts. If a new beginning is not coming, I need to make one. I need to have a fresh start in my life. I can't just keep going the way I've been. Today, I want to explore Israel as they're getting ready to enter the promised land, because I think in the way that they enter the promised land, we see such powerful, practical guidance for how we're supposed to embrace our new beginnings in life. And just out of curiosity, how many of you in the last two or three years have had a new beginning, like a new life stage, a new experience, launched a new endeavor, bought a new home, anything? So, I mean, new beginnings fill the room, and if you haven't had one in the last couple of years, very high likely you'll have one 
in the next three to five years. I'll spare you the practical life coaching stuff. I, I can speak to that as many of you can. I'm not here to tell you how to network, make friends, succeed, and make better money, get an advancement in your career. All those things matter, but that I'm, not, I'm a pastor. I'm not Tony Robbins. So I don't want to spend my time on the pulpit telling you how to get ahead in the world. What I want to focus on today is the spiritual dimension of new beginnings. Because in the end, it's the spiritual dimension that will either make a new beginning the start of something great or the start of something that derails us. When we look at Israel preparing to enter the promised land, there are some key lessons, and I I found several. I'm going to limit myself to a few of them. But the first one is they were called to fix their eyes on God. You know, it was early morning when Israel gathered at a rally point called Shittim. Uh, That's the right way to pronounce it, by the way, Shittim. And it's really the plural of the word acacia tree. So if you made it an English name, the place name would be Acacia Grove. Sounds like a really pleasant suburb to live in, Acacia Grove. So they all rallied at this place called Acacia Grove. And early in the morning, they struck out several million people in a massive uh, group migrating towards the banks of the River Jordan. And as they arrived at the, the banks of the river, before they crossed, that river represented a physical boundary between 40 years of wilderness wandering and entering into something that they'd been longing for, anticipating for 40 years. They'd heard their parents talk longingly about escaping the desert and seeing this promised land, and their parents, because of their sin, were disqualified from entering. But they, the Joshua generation, the second generation, got to do what their parents were not allowed to do. They heard their parents talk about a plenty. They were sick of the wilderness wandering, and finally they were getting ready to cross the boundary into that place. And as they arrive at the banks of the river, they pause and they're made to camp there, and they wait for several days. Those waiting periods before a new beginning are intensely important times. Some of you are in it right now. It might be the, the last summer before you start a new phase of your school life. Maybe it's those last few days, that week or two, before you start a new job or you're in between jobs. Maybe it's the last days or weeks of your engagement before you've come to your wedding day. Maybe it's one thing, whatever it is, those last few days right before a new beginning usually come with a period of rest, of pausing the old activity. And those are powerful times in our lives. They could either become idle, wasted, dead space, or they become really important periods of preparation. It's really up to you how you spend that lull. Most people, they love to just veg out and binge watch Netflix because it's so much easier to do nothing than to do something. And, you know, I'm not going to quite call that sin, but I think it's actually a lost opportunity because God often gives us these weird lulls right before a strong new beginning, and they're meant to be used to prepare, not just packing and getting your shower curtains and all that, but it's meant to start thinking about how this new beginning is going to impact your experience as a human being. How it will affect your soul, your heart. Because we are so prone to become humans doing, we forget to be human beings. We forget how to actually pay attention to what we're becoming, what's going on in us, because we're so furiously busy doing all the stuff required to get a good new beginning going. As they gather for those three days, everyone is in absolute anticipation 
A lot of thoughts going through their minds. They can't wait to get going. And one morning, the leaders begin circulating through the camp and saying, it's time to go. Here's what you need to do. And they give him this guidance. The leaders spread through the whole camp repeating this message. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God. The Ark of the Covenant was a giant ornate box in which the, the scrolls of the, uh, the tablets of the Ten Commandments were, were deposited. And this Ark represented the physical presence of God among them. God obviously is everywhere, but he chose to take this one physical symbol and say, if that's with you, you'll know that I'm with you. It's a symbol that I'm near to you, that I'm still on your side, I'm for you. And so that ark was a very important physical object for the nation of Israel. And they say, when you see that ark of the covenant and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. Keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. The way they were supposed to govern their movements was to just keep their eyes on the ark, which represented the presence of God. And they're supposed to move when it moved and stop when it stopped. And the reason that was important is because they had never been this way before. I don't know if you've ever had to navigate to a place that you haven't been before in the days before GPS and all that. Um, I remember years ago, I went to L.A. for ministry, and uh, I rented a Mini Cooper. Just, it was a fun little car. And I, I preached at this Vietnamese church, and they were like, hey, we're going to all go to a restaurant after. Um, it's really complicated to find it. Just follow me. So the one guy said, hey, I also have a Mini Cooper. I'll lead. You just follow me in your car. He didn't give me the name of the restaurant, the address of the restaurant. He just told me, stay on my tail, we'll be fine. And then he proceeded to try for 45 minutes to lose me. This dude drove like a maniac. Thankfully, I'm a professional level driver. I kept up with him. It was like a scene out of the Italian job. Too many Coopers just weaving in and out of traffic on the five. It was crazy. And it was so stressful because I knew that if I lose this guy... I'm not going to make it to where we're supposed to go because I don't even know where it is. And so I was fully fixated on staying within visual sight of the taillights of that other Mini Cooper. I think that's really the plan here, is God's not telling them exactly where to go. He's saying, you've never been this way before, but I'm going ahead of you. Everywhere I go, eyes on me, just follow me and you'll be okay. I think that's a pretty stressful and impractical way of navigating to a place you've never been. But God had an intention in doing that. The point was not just to get to a destination, but to learn that life with God is not a life where we ask him, where do you want me to end up? And then I'll take care of it on my own. I know many of us are so self-reliant and independent. I personally prefer those kinds of things. I don't want someone hand-holding me or leading me. I just want to know, what do you need done? When do you need it done by? And just get out of my way and I'll get it done for you. I don't want all the rules. I don't want all. And so I think we have this nature that just set me on a path and get out of my way. And God says, that's not what I want because my goal in your life is not just to get you somewhere. It's to walk with you every step of the way. What matters to God is not that we end up from point A to point B, but that we walk with him and follow him the entire way to get to point B so that we acknowledge we can't even know what point B is if we lose sight of the one who's supposed to lead us there. Now, the thing is, 
It's not the first time Israel was told to move and stop based on the following of God. Prior to this, do you remember what they had? For 40 years in the wilderness, a giant pillar of cloud by day and a giant pillar of fire at night would fall over the place where the tabernacle was established, where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's a big tent, basically their church building. And the Ark of the Covenant went inside. And then to signal God's presence, a giant pillar of cloud would settle over it. And so that's a pretty easy symbol to follow. And that's how they did it. All eyes on this cloud or this column of fire. And whenever it moved, they moved. Whenever it stopped, it stopped. There's a, a, a really cool presentation of how this worked in Numbers 9. And here's a couple verses from that passage. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. The point of that is that this isn't the first time they were told to keep their eyes on God and move or stop based on where he's leading. This was the way they were taught to live for 40 years of wandering through a giant wasteland. And the point of that, I think, is this. That the way we learn to follow God in our daily lives determines how well we follow him into transition and change. Because new beginnings cause a lot of stress. It's because precisely as the leaders told Israel, you've never gone this way before. You don't have a script because this is all new for you. The first time we brought Noah home from the hospital, I was freaking out. I couldn't believe they were going to let us take this new human being home and we were solely responsible for keeping him alive. I did not feel ready or qualified. I was so filled with stress And we had an hour drive home from the hospital, and it was winter, and it was snowy, and I drove like 20 miles under the speed limit. That's the first and last time in my life I drove that slow. It's really uh, so important when we're going to places that we haven't been, that we have someone leading us, because it's frightening to have to get to places that you're not familiar with. That's what new beginnings represent. And the extent to which we've learned to follow God's lead in our day-to-day will govern whether we feel confident and comfortable following Him into new places. You know, the Ark of the Covenant, like we said, was a symbol of the presence of God. And for Israel, the, the, the presence of God was captured in a physical object in a central place. But for us who live after the time of Jesus, He Himself is that symbol of the presence of God. They call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is a flesh and blood representation to us, and not just a symbol, he is God himself, not content to live in the heavens or be invisibly present in all places. He was God become man, so that he would dwell with us, grow up like we did, experience every stage of the human life, all the travails, acne, indigestion, diarrhea, all of it. He was fully human and he embodied, he limited himself to one place in space and time. Jesus Christ is our Ark of the Covenant. He is that manifestation, that idea, that reality of the presence of God in our lives. 
And then when He departed from the earth, He left for us the Holy Spirit of God, who is not just God with us, He is God in us. And the Holy Spirit of God is a most experiential uh, person of the Godhood. He fills us. He empowers us. He touches us. He enables us to do and feel things that we can on our own. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, we are to run this race by fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the one who began our faith. He's the one who will bring us to completion and maturity. I thought about including a slide, but I decided not to. But I was looking at all these pictures of falcons and eagles' eyes. I don't know if you've ever seen a falcon when it finally finds a mouse in the field below. They've got some really cool photographs of of these birds of prey, their eyes when they lock on. And it's something else to see. They're just, just, you know, like... Remember Mike Singletary? When he was playing football and they would show his crazy eyes just like this. You're like, I don't want to be in front of this man. It was perfect, absolute focus. And whatever he's looking at, you don't want to be that. That's the kind of fixing that God wants from us in our relationship with him. Here's what I find interesting. A ginormous pillar of cloud and a ginormous pillar of fire are really easy to follow. You'd have to be trying hard to get lost. You don't want to be the family who's like, where did everyone go? Uh, that giant pillar of cloud, 15 miles away, you could still see it, right? Just go there. That's not that hard. But what's interesting this time is that God dispenses with the cloud and the fire. Instead, he says, follow a little group of priests carrying a little object and, by the way, stay about a thousand yards behind him. I don't know if you've ever spaced out a thousand yards, but that's ten football fields distance from a small entourage carrying a small object. And the point of that, I think, is not just about showing respect and reverence for God. It's about saying one of the marks of maturity is that you develop the ability to discern God's presence, to follow his lead, even when he's not being painfully obvious. Even when you have to be alert, look for him. Some of us are like, I don't see him, I don't see him. That's because we're still thinking like children, where's the giant cloud, where's the giant fire? That's the way he will lead us sometimes. But what he wants to know is, are you looking for him or will you only follow him if he smashes into you in the, in the field of view in the most obvious way? There are times when God feels so far away from us, but if we look for Him, we will find Him. He's not playing hide and seek. He's just calling us to grow in maturity, to look for Him even when He's not making Himself that painfully obvious for us. Do you know how to discern, how to spot the activity, the presence, the work of Jesus in your life? If that's something that you need to grow in, these periods, these lulls, just before the new beginning gets kicked off, it's the perfect time to visit that in your heart. And if you don't know where to begin, if you don't know what that looks like, there are people who care about you, who know what they're doing, and if you ask them, they will be so overjoyed to help you learn how to do that. So I want to encourage you, if you don't know how to spot and follow the presence of God, the leading of God in your life, Find someone you look up to spiritually and ask them how you do that because it's going to be critical to your flourishing and to your walking in step with God in the new beginning. I don't think you need a pastor or the church to succeed in life. 
A lot of people tell you, you're not going to have a good outcome if you don't love God, if you don't follow God. I don't believe that's true because I, the world is filled with non-believers who have lots of money, lots of accolades, lots of accomplishments. God is not required for worldly success. But God is truly required for life that is worth living. A real life. Not just money and success and comfort, but meaning. A life worth passing on to the next generation so that they are fully alive and not just happy and comfortable. God is not required for worldly success, but He is absolutely required for spiritual life. And that's why keeping in step with Him absolutely matters if you're starting a new beginning. Let me give you a second thing, and that is to devote yourself to Jesus as you embark on a new beginning. Joshua, the leader of the whole country, stood before the people and said, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. The people were about to make a historic crossing. This is a journey that began with their parents' generation. And if you're an immigrant, then in many ways you can relate to this because my parents began a journey in 1973 uprooting everything and leaving behind all their relatives to come to a new country on the other side of the world. And today I'm raising my children in that new country. And I'm a citizen of that new country. And I'm a patriot and I love this new country with all its flaws and all its faults. I am so happy and proud to call myself an American. And whereas my parents wanted so much to find a safe place and to flourish here, I think God is calling me to go beyond safety to be a blessing and a messenger to this place that I now call home. And so I am now crossing rivers in a journey that began with my parents' life. That's exactly what's happening here. And so what he's saying to them is before you embark on this thing which millions of people have waited a lifetime to experience, take a moment and consecrate yourself before God. Consecrate sounds like a heavy, formal, fancy word. Remember just a little while back, about a couple months back in the Lord's Prayer series, I was preaching about hallowed be your name. We talked about what that word means. Consecrate in the Hebrew word kadash is the same word basically that we call sanctify in the New Testament. It means to set apart or devote someone or something for a very specific purpose or relationship. And the, the illustration I use, maybe you'll remember this, is your toothbrush is consecrated for your teeth. That doesn't mean it can't be used by someone else or it can't be used by, for something else or it can't be used on a body part other than the teeth, but it shouldn't be. The idea of consecration is not that it changes the essential act of, or traits of a thing. That toothbrush is exactly the same toothbrush whether I call it mine or whether it's yours. It's exactly the same toothbrush with the same properties whether I use it to scrub the sink or to clean my teeth. But the minute I designate it as consecrated for my teeth, I will be offended deeply and alarmed if I see you cleaning your teeth with it. I'll be deeply offended if I see you cleaning anything other than teeth with it. The minute you do, it's yours. It's no longer mine. Because it was supposed to be exclusively, solely, for one purpose, one relationship. Toothbrush, my teeth. Consecrated, sanctified, set apart, made holy. It's not just about moral righteousness. It's really a function of belonging. 
Do you understand that? Consecration is not a word about, about function or purpose. It's about belonging. And what God is saying is before you go through this magnificent life experience, settle in your heart the most important question, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Because if you don't settle that, then as you go into this new beginning and if you're facing all the challenges and all the needs, after a while you start to think that God belongs to you and not the other way around. God will become very quickly the butler in the sky, the one you turn to for a bailout, for help. He's the one you dedicate your successes to. But do you acknowledge that your whole life belongs to the one who created you and who saved you? That's the most foundational question of the human life, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you're religious or not. In the end, you will return to your maker one way or the other. No one lives forever here. The most fundamental question of the human experience is to whom do you belong? That's what consecration is all about. And especially before major new beginnings, it's so important that we get that question settled. Consecration is about belonging. We know that because when we have weddings, it's not just a legal ceremony to get a piece of paper. It's about publicly stating with a covenant that we belong to one another. That's why when marriage vows are broken and there's infidelity, the pain is so deep. Because this person who belongs to you, who is consecrated to you, has willingly given themselves to another. It's one of the deepest pains a human being can experience. That's why God calls our spiritual unfaithfulness adultery so often in the Bible. To give us a picture of what it feels like when the one who loves us and made us is turned away from in our hearts. You know, God's, Joshua says God's going to do some amazing things among you tomorrow. And those amazing things will enthrall you, they will distract you, and they can either drive you towards God or they can pull you away from Him. That's what spectacle and miracles do for us. And here's a couple things to remember about devotion. We don't consecrate ourselves to God to ensure a good outcome. It's not such a um, crass exchange of promise. It's not a contract where we say to God, I will give you my full devotion if you will give me good health, good money, good relationship, good children. It's not that kind of exchange. When we consecrate ourselves to God, we do it because he has already demonstrated on the cross exactly how much he loves and is committed to us. About 30 of us gathered last night for praise and prayer night, and we sang a song that really made an impression on me last night. One of the lines is, if this, if this life brings suffering, I will remember what he did for me, basically, on Calvary. He has nothing more to prove to us beyond the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing God owes us. Nothing more he can do to prove anything to us. When we look at the cross and go, yeah, but I have this going on in my life. Where are you now? You have misunderstood God completely. The greatest thing he did for us, he did already on the cross. And when we consecrate ourselves to him, it's not to ensure that in this new beginning in my life, I will have success and a good outcome. It's to just remind us that we belong to him. He is worthy of this. This is our God. And we devote ourselves not to get something back, but simply because that is our response to the God that we see. Here's another thing we can say about devotion. Don't just devote the things in your life. Devote yourself 
It's really tempting to say, you know what, God, I'm about to embark on a new thing. I dedicate my business to you. I dedicate my studies and my career to you. I dedicate my marriage to you. This new house you blessed us with, we dedicate this building to you. It's tempting to do that. I'm not saying that's bad. But here's the thing. If you dedicate all your stuff and not yourself, then the the normal outcome will be that you will pursue those things by your standards, on your terms, by your, your own techniques. Whatever it takes, you will make sure you succeed in that. And once you take the finished product, you'll grab it and say, here, God, this I kind of dedicated to you. He doesn't have the fullness of us. He's getting some... And so when I hear about dedicating my business or dedicating my studies, but not dedicating myself... The word dedicate, you know, what, what do you usually think about when you hear the word dedicate? I think of radio DJs and people calling and saying, uh, I'd like to dedicate the song to Tammy. And you're like, what does that mean, dedicate? What is it called? You, I, I stayed on hold for like 30 minutes. I didn't sing the song. I didn't perform the song. I'm not even going to put the record on the record player. I'm just saying words. I dedicate this song request to Tammy. <laughs> and if Tammy's out there listening, she'll know that I cared about her enough to call a radio station and say words. Now, I don't mean to make fun of that because sometimes underlying that radio dedication is a deep, fierce, (laughs) lifetime love. But I don't think God is interested in us dedicating the finished products of the stuff we love. And go, here, here, this is for you. He wants us, not our stuff. He doesn't need your business. He doesn't need your children. He loves your children. He doesn't need them the way we want to dedicate them. He wants us. That's his standard. That's his pull. And so before we enter a new beginning, we settle that question again and again in a fresh way. Let me give this last thing. Pause before a new beginning and remember God's faithfulness in the past. Look what Joshua 3, 15 to 17 says. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Do you get the picture? As soon as the guys carrying the ark, their feet hit the water's edge, the water starts piling up upstream. And all the water in the river continues flowing downstream until you've got a wall of water that's growing and growing and a dry riverbed for as far as I can see downstream. If that sounds familiar, it was meant to sound familiar. Because this generation, what we call the Joshua generation, the Moses generation entered the wilderness, and the Joshua generation exited it. What is so interesting to me is they enter and exit in exactly the same way. They cross through a body of water miraculously as though on dry ground. And I think the reason God engineered it that way is because you have one generation who witnessed the miracles of God, who took a huge leap of faith. They did something so difficult And God showed up in it, but then they sinned, they disqualified themselves, they died out, they grew old. And here's this new generation who grew up hearing the stories but not seeing the miracles themselves. They were children when all these things happened. I vaguely remember when I was six, like birds were falling out of the sky and people ate them. 
And there was this weird stuff that was like flour. I heard stories about crossing a river and the walls of water and you could see fish like an aquarium. They heard all that, but they didn't experience it. And so God was saying to them, you will experience, even in a small way, the same miracles your parents experienced because they entered this way. You're about to enter a new thing, but you're exiting that wilderness. And it's God's way of saying to them, I'm repeating history to tell you that the God of your parents, the God of yesterday, is still present with you now, and that same God is going to be with you in the future. You don't just have to base your courage and confidence and faith on stories and testimony. He wants us to experience things that others have told us about. We need to learn to pray boldly for miraculous experiences, for the things that make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. I remember hearing all these stories about missionaries and my pastor friends in seminary who were like, you know, I just prayed and then all of a sudden someone sent me the exact amount of money I needed. Exactly the amount? Yeah, like $59.16. I don't know how they knew, but somehow, and you didn't tell anyone? No, it's such a miracle. I'm like, hmm, a little skeptical, but okay. I'll accept it. I'll allow it. You had a miracle. How come I don't have any miracles? And one of my friends goes, well, do you ever ask God? I'm like, Hmm, point taken. So I asked. I began to pray, God, I'm nearly broke. This Korean church is paying me like $400 a month and working me like full time. I'm barely paying rent and tuition. So I say, God, I don't think I'm going to make the payment to the seminary this semester. Can you uh, do something crazy like you do for all my friends? Can you treat me the way you treat them? And it's so miraculous. Like I actually got a miracle. And the exact dollar amount I needed, and I did not tell a soul, someone sent me cash. And it was just a little over the amount, but they said, we know this is a little extra. Use the rest to buy a donut or something. It was a card. And postmark Carroll Stream, Illinois. I didn't know anyone in Carroll Stream at the time. I don't know if someone um, maybe went to another mailbox in another town, dropped it off, but I got a miracle. And it did something to me because I'd heard the stories, but when I actually experienced it, it fundamentally changed something inside of me. It changed the way I prayed. It changed the posture I had when I was facing scary or unknown things. Because God actually became real to me when I experienced that. And even now when I face things, even when I pray and He doesn't answer that prayer... I find such comfort looking back and remembering that that thing he did for me is forever in the permanent record a part of my story. That doesn't mean God's my butler and he has to show up every time I ask him for something, but I have testimonies, real experiences you cannot dispute with me. I know what I experienced. And every day that I'm facing a thing, I can look back and say, I know who my God is. He may show up differently today. He may call me to more endurance. I don't know. But I know that I, I'm praying to a God who isn't a figment of my imagination. He's very real to me. I know who He is because I see Him looking back. In 2001, 20 years ago, we had a, a speaker from, from Trinity, one of the professors there named Dr. David Hesselgrave. I, I was... I had a little bit of a, like a, a nerd crush on him because he was a cross-cultural missiologist. He wrote some of my favorite books in seminary, and I couldn't believe I was meeting him in person, and he preached at our church. And he said something in that sermon that I have never forgotten in 20 years. He said, you may hope to see God in the future, 
But if you really want to see God, you see Him most clearly in your past. You may not always know how God is working right now. You may not know how God will work in the future. But if you look backwards, you will see so many evidences of the clear presence and work of God in your life. And by looking back, you gain the confidence you need to approach the future with faith. If you don't have those testimonies, those memories, if you don't rehearse those things, then you will always have anxiety along with the anticipation. I think maybe part of the reason anxiety is so on the rise is because these miraculous experiences of God's power are so missing in our lives today. And we're facing a scary, unknown future without memories of the powerful reality of God in our lives. James reminds us that we receive not because we ask not. Just like my friend challenged me, have you asked him for a miracle? Have you asked him to show up in your life? Not just for self-preservation. I don't mean the Hail Mary of just like, I'm never going to get into this school, but just go ahead and see if I get in. I'm talking about like God show up. I don't know how, but I need to see you, experience you. I don't just want an outcome. Thanks a lot. See you later. I want to know you. I think God loves prayers like that. He loves the prayers that indicate that we don't want the good things he gives, but we want him. I mean, don't you just hate it when you ask a friend, hey, uh, what are you doing Friday night? Why? Uh, you want to go see a movie? What, what, what movie is it? Does that matter? Dude, I'm asking. All right, well, who else is going to be there? Forget it. I'm sorry I asked. I don't want to. Clearly, you really care a lot about the other company, what movie we're going to see, where we're going to see it. I'm the one asking. Does that not matter to you? What do you really want here? But that feels a lot to me like the way we treat God. We want all this stuff we're not really that interested in him. But when we change our hearts and when we change our prayers, I really believe that God wants to show up. And he will. You may not get that miracle tomorrow, but I believe you will see the supernatural presence of God manifest himself in your life if you zealously ask him to show himself to you. I'll just finish this way. In a couple months, I turned 54. And I realized even at this ripe old age, I am not done with new beginnings. I'm a couple years away from becoming an empty nester. Jeannie and I are probably a few years away, hopefully, fingers crossed, from becoming grandparents. We're those weird people. We can't wait to become grandparents. Like, I can't. I'm so excited. I'm like vibrating with... Anticipation, becoming a grandpa. Can't wait. Please, children, help me. Get married first, but then, you know, help me. And before I know it, I'm going to be facing retirement. And that doesn't mean I'm going to stop serving the Lord, but I think I need to prepare ahead of time to get out of the way here before I become part of the problem and not part of the solution. And that may be 10 years, 15 years, but I'm already realizing I am not done with new beginnings. Everyone who's alive will have a series of new beginnings. And the reason we mark graduations is because every new beginning also marks a kind of end, doesn't it? It's the ending of something and the starting of another. 
I think it's so important when we sit at the boundary of one chapter leading into another that we don't just get fixated on all the busy work, all the ways we're guaranteeing our, our good outcomes, but pause and take special care of our relationship with God. Because in the end, what will sink you in this life is not that you're broke. It'll be that you don't know why you're here. You don't know where you're going. You don't have any confidence, any peace about the things that matter most. That is what will sink you. I'll say it again. You don't need to be a Christian to be wealthy and comfortable and successful. The world has proven that for thousands of years. But you do need God to be truly alive. A life worth living. So with each new beginning, I call you as your pastor to take stock of your relationship with God. Fix your eyes on Him. Look for Him even when He's not being obvious. Devote your whole self to God because He's worthy, not because you need something. And if you're ever scared or nervous, if you're ever filled with anxiety, one way you can begin to overcome is to look backwards and see that He has shown up again and again in your story. And it's His way of depositing in your life a promise that He will walk with you and show up again. Think about how many years we've been a homeless church, wandering like Joseph and Mary on the night of Jesus' birth from place to place. And yet here we are in this weird room. This was a last-minute thing. We're trying to get back in the schools, but you know that we as a church are trying to acquire this building. And just being in this room, I can't help thinking back to our whole journey Pastor Stan was sharing how faithful God has been every single step of the way. So yeah, we've got to raise a lot of money. We've got to go through a lot of paperwork. But I feel confident in God. Because looking back, our story is filled with Him. So I'm going to invite you to pause with me just a moment. Your own story, maybe you're right at the cusp of a new beginning yourself. We know the graduates are. But what about you? You've dotted your I's, you've crossed your T's. You'll have food on the table and a place to live. But what about the deeper things? The questions that haunt you? So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to invite you now to listen for that still small voice of God. Let Him speak and then respond. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.